Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Eric Klein, host and producer of this program. And I'm Paul Reesmandel, and joining us from San Francisco via Skype is Jennifer Waits. Hello, greetings. Welcome, Jennifer. And you're back uh, from, some, from, from some travels, and you'll bring uh, for us today uh, your recent tour of a community radio station in Richmond, Virginia. That's right. W-R-I-R, Richmond Independent Radio. Wonderful. I'm excited to hear about this station because I've been aware of it for quite some time, and, and Richmond has sort of had a, uh, I think, a rich... Uh, so to speak, uh, independent media kind of community going on now uh, for quite some time, as we'll learn much more about in sort of the roots of the station. So I'm really glad you had a chance to uh, stop by and and learn more about them. Yeah, I I love getting all of the lore, and there's much lore, so (laughs) we will get to that shortly. Wonderful. And uh, first up, I wanted to uh, address a question that, that we've that we've been hearing a little bit, and and it's and it's about the uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding, right? So as we reported back on uh, episode eighty five of the podcast a few episodes ago, yeah, and has been reported uh, in uh, helpful and unhelpful ways all over the social media landscape. Yeah, it's been on, <laughs> it's been in the news, et cetera. And 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 the story is that uh, in uh, President Trump's uh, proposed budget, he proposes zeroing out uh, funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment of the Arts. And that's something we discussed with Matthew Lassar, our colleague, because he is an historian. He's an historian of radio. So he, had, he has some good perspective on um, on the uh, on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and on previous attempts, previous proposals to zero out this funding. Yeah, my main takeaway from that one with Matthew is that uh, it's such a weird system that it's even on the table at all in our in our political system because it's not the first time a president has has been able to make this threat, and uh, in other public media uh, frameworks that are possible, you wouldn't necessarily have public media on the table. To be to be chopped or not chopped. Do you mean do you mean in other countries? Yes. Yeah. Well, well I mean you could. <laughs> another world is possible. Yeah. Even in our country, right. if if it had if the if the if the ball had bounced another way when they built our public media system, it, you wouldn't necessarily have presidents or other politicians uh, able to so easily make these sorts of threats to uh, to clip big birds' wings, as it were. Right. And and we haven't really said anything more about it. That's sort of the question is, why, why hasn't Radio Survivor reported additionally on this? Why haven't we dug in to find out what stations would be affected? And, and there's a couple of simple answers there. Uh, one of the simplest answers is that it affects community radio much less than public radio. And and our real focus is on community radio. Yeah. The and, big and, impact and, would be on those TV stations. Yeah, the biggest impact will be on public television stations. And not that we don't think that's important, but we're very lucky that there's an organization called Current, which uh, is the independent news reporting uh, journal, website, and podcast for public media. And, and they are covering it well. And um, actually, their podcast uh, called The Pub with Adam Ragusea. Uh, recently did an episode specifically focusing on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, um, examining the sort of the funding structure. And I learned, actually, that the funding structure is is two years out. 
Hmm. meaning that uh, if funding were to be eliminated altogether in this coming budget, um, there would still be money in the system. Of course, it would run out in two years, but there would because it's an endowment, right? They'd start making cuts right away to try. Well, to of course, yeah, right. But, but we can But yeah. yeah, right. I mean, things would have to happen. But the, the the simple fact of the matter is, it wouldn't just be this. The, it wouldn't just be the spigot turning off. It would be more like slowly. It'd be like you turn it off, but you've got hundreds of miles of of uh, hose. It'd be a two year long avalanche off a cliff of right. despair for the public media fans of the world. But um, but it does affect public media much more so than community media. And that's one reason why we haven't dedicated a lot of resources <laughs> Community media it. doesn't have that much funding well, and that, I mean, <laughs> from and that, the government. And we can say that that's a problem, right, in the fact that uh, community media used to receive more funding from the corporation for public broadcasting, and that has dwindled in the last decade and a half. So, you know, already community media, for better or worse, has uh, is no longer – you know, in that funding line. Um, the other part is, you know, we've received like the question, you know, how many stations will be affected? And again, if we're talking about community radio, it's actually a hard answer to come by and will require some research and lots of digging. And that requires time. How right? many hours do you think? Estimate. You know, I haven't, I can't, but it would probably, it probably take somebody at least a full day. It would take you two hours just to get a good estimation of how many other hundreds well, right. of hours it would take it would, you. Yeah, to figure out where, <laughs> where I can look and, and then how would I determine if a station is a community station or public station? Because while we use these terms... There is no specific designation with the FCC. There is no specific designation in the CPB. To the CPB, all stations it funds are public media, right? Even though a station like KBOO, which actually gets a uh, recently started getting grants from the CPB again, it considers itself a community station. But as far as the CPB is concerned, it's a public station. And so untangling that means really probably going through the list of all radio stations receiving grants. And that's hundreds and hundreds of radio stations to see how you can eliminate it, see what their funding is. And then probably you'd want to do a little more research and find out how intrinsic is this re- is this funding? A very worthy project. A very worthy which project. Is a little more complicated than three friends gathering together for an hour and a half uh, yeah. once a week. I mean, as a volunteer operation, and it's not <laughs> that we haven't ever gone in and done uh, some of this research. Certainly, sure. Jennifer, you've done research into a lot of uh, college radio station situations. Um, over time, and um, both of us, you and I both uh, did research on low-power FM stations, um, not just simply reporting as their uh, construction permits were authorized, um, but also in, in some cases digging into the record when, when there were problems or competition, because uh, you and I both know how to work the FCC database for that and could kind of do that maybe in an hour as opposed to eight or, or 16 um, just through years of experience. But this is an area where we don't have a lot of expertise. And certainly, let's also make this a call out. If there's anyone in the audience <laughs> who has an expertise or would love to take it on as a research project, we would love to help amplify those results. We would love to share them. So certainly let us know. Send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. There's a solution-oriented. Yeah, I don't want to be, be too defensive, but I think it's always worth pointing out to folks is that we have a longstanding website. We have a, And the podcast now, we, we're, we're into more, more than two years, I think, um, or getting close to two years, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it can seem on the outside to, 
that we are maybe are like a current, a current which is which is housed at a university, uh, which is funded by grants, which has several full time staffers. We might look like a scrappier version of that. Well, only I, yeah, I would we say we don't have we're not housed at a university. We don't have full time staffers. Yeah, you guys have shot yourself in the foot by putting hours and hours and hours <laughs> yeah, and right. hours and hours into certain articles and and topics. You look you look like you know what you're doing. Yeah, and in some cases we do know what we're doing. Yeah. It's a matter of having the time to do it. Um, so, and and also that way, I mean, I will put it out as as uh, as a little request for funding. The more funding we have, uh, the better able we are to do this sort of reporting. Though, though I have to say, it it would require a fair increase for us to be able to have set aside that time, maybe every week, for someone to have that eight. Uh, 12, 16 to, you know, 20 hours a week to kind of dig in on these sorts of stories and to do the the proper type of, of research and reporting that it would really deserve. That's definitely one where you want the uh, the free labor and expertise available at an academic institution, right? To get well, I, and I don't I don't think current gets free labor, right? right. That, like they're sort of, they're actually sort of editorially independent, but being housed at a university does open up a lot of other resources like academic libraries mm. uh, and things like that, that are again, not necessarily accessible to us. Uh, none, none of, except Matthew, I guess a little bit, cause he does teach. Um, at, at a major university. So anyway, you know, because the question has come up, I, I thought we should we should address it. And the question and, and, is, which stations not defend, might not defensively, but to just sort of get shut down by Donald Trump? That's, I guess that, that's what that's what a listener is begging for. The like, don't don't just sound the alarm without uh, without some. And specifics. my guess is, if I were to hazard a guess, is that in terms of community radio. I don't think there will be community radio stations that are shut down if a CPB goes down. Yeah, it's just the, just the the overall public media and listener supported yeah, media landscape would, would be would greatly be affected, set on fire, and, and, that and it would affect that stations. Help anybody, it would affect stations that carry NPR programming or any programming that comes over the public radio satellite system, or comes over any you know is distributed via NPR or Public Radio International. Like that would be affected. The interconnection would be affected. Uh, so stations will probably stay on the air, but if they're relying on any programming that comes over those systems. Um, which I think includes, uh, yeah, I can't, I, I'm, I'm too far away from stations to tell you what it includes, but mm. you know, that would be affected and, and would be impacted, but you know, and there are some tribal stations as, um, as Sally from the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, uh, pointed out to us, we'll put that in the show notes, who rely more on that CBB funding than most community radio stations. So yeah. there would be an impact there. I was, I think that was the main takeaway from that yeah. episode. Something that which I, I didn't, re- which I didn't even yeah. know or realize that which. was something which uh, Sally shared. And I may follow up, I have an opportunity to follow up with uh, someone at NFCB to see if they have any easy numbers at hand. Uh, but you know, again, um, they don't necessarily keep a database of these things as well. So anyway, it's not that we don't care. It's not because we don't think it's important, but you know, it's a matter of balancing resource and, and what we're really good at. And we'll definitely put in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Uh, this is episode number 88. And we'll put some links to some things uh, that Current has done some reporting because I think they definitely do some of the best reporting on on public media. But keep those criticisms coming. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for caring about the truth and good reporting. Uh, nothing wrong with the, the instinct to call us out for the lack of information. Just uh, <laughs> there's a reason. <laughs> Just that, yes. 
there is a reason. I know. If we could do it all. I, I often get the question about how many college radio stations are there in the country. And I have sort of a long time project where I'm keeping my own tally, but it's the sort of thing where it seems like a simple question Such a simple and question. it's actually really hard to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Cause it's not as if there's some centralized database of all college radio knowledge or, right. or on so many of these. And the same is uh, true about questions. low power FM, right yeah. guys? I, I told someone that yesterday. I was like, there is no list. No, that, I mean, there's a list of you can you can get you can generate. It's a, a little list. easier. It's a little bit. You can generate a list of stations from the FCC and actually, uh, Rec Networks, which is an engineering firm, uh, which is uh, run by Michelle Bradley, has done wonderful work because she has programmed a website that can basically query the FCC database for you on low power FM. Fancy. But what you can't figure out necessarily is whether they are a community station in the way that we think about it, or if they are a college or high school station, or whether they might be a station that is mostly dedicated to rerunning syndicated programming. Right. Usually religious programming. Religious programming, but could be in a different style. It's almost impossible. Well, she has been working on that. Um, She's been asking for people to help categorize the LPFMs that she has. Mm. So I know that. That is in its – I haven't looked at it recently, but I know that's something she's been working Crowdsourcing. on. Crowdsourcing. Yeah. The way that like yeah. Facebook has been recently asking me, is this a restaurant that serves hamburgers or is this a comedy club? <laughs> I, you know, and like you, you have to wonder what they're, what they're getting exactly. at. Exactly. Yeah. But, well, with, but with college radio, it's complicated because it's more than terrestrial station uh, – more than licensed. Right. FCC licensed stations. So, you know, and often college radio stations don't – really do a great job of promoting themselves. So, you know, I'll, I'll see an article about a station I've never heard of before. So I'll add it to my little list that I have going. Um, and you can look at Wikipedia to see how many college radio stations there are, but it often includes stations that we wouldn't consider to be college radio stations. So some of them are really public radio stations or community radio stations. So it's, you know, like the question that Paul that we've just been talking about, about, um, funding and CPB. Um, it's a similar sort of question that requires actually a great amount of research to determine how many college radio stations are there. And if I found it, if I, you know, finished my research, it would be out of date the next day because (laughs) there would be a new station or a station that disappeared. So, you know, it's an ever changing number. Yeah, absolutely. But we, I mean, we're not ignoring it. That's why I would like someone to know we are sort of paying attention, but we're also, I think part of it is, is that um, perhaps as a budget becomes closer and starts being, you know, hashed out in the uh, Congress, then we might have more uh, need to jump in and really begin to parse this out. At the moment, it's a threat. But it is yeah. it is not yet seen the light of day in the Congress, so we don't honestly know or have any idea how realistic the threat is. And history, which is at least a, somewhat of a guide, is that these threats have not been carried through on. Eric sort of said to me, you know, before we started the show, you know, it seems as though this Trump administration is one where history isn't always a good guide. And I think that that's a fair corrective, but until, you know, we really start to see the, the, 
the budget markup that comes out of committees in the Senate and the House, it's hard for us to know whether this is something we need to be expending a lot of our time. Sure. In that was my favorite, well. uh, my favorite uh, civics lesson of that moment where the where the president's budget was put forward. That uh, you know. You don't make a lot of friends on Facebook if that's all you say to people. Like, actually, this isn't even really a. This is just a, yeah. more of a public relations stance than an actual budget. Uh, but you know that doesn't uh, that doesn't get as many clicks. No, it doesn't. Maybe if we had more clicks, <laughs> even on Facebook, just the <laughs> likes and the smiley faces and the hearts, the little angry guy. Yeah. I don't know. Clicks don't seem to amount to dollars so much anymore. That's all I can really say. So uh, we're going to keep doing what we do, and we hope you appreciate and enjoy it. And, you know, if there's any of these questions you would love to help dive into, if you have information techniques or or maybe database query expertise you'd love to share, uh, drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And if you can help us out a little bit with a few shekels, uh, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. We could we could really use it. But let's uh, let's go to a fun story here, one that I'm really excited for, and let's learn a bit more about community radio in Richmond, Virginia, W-R-I-R. Jennifer, you were just there, and um, this is a uh, – is it a low-power FM station or is it a full-power community station? It's low-power FM from the first low-power FM window. That's W-R-I-R-L-P, 97.3 FM in Richmond, Virginia. So they launched on January 1st, 2005. So one of the, one of the early low-power FM stations. And it's an, it's an urban station because it is actually located in, in the city itself, correct? Yeah. And so um, when I was there on my tour learning about the history, um, I found out that it was potentially one of – one of the few urban markets that received a low power FM license during that first window. And, you know, I was told that, you know, basically they found out that Richmond was an underserved area Hmm. and, you know, because there was actually room on the dial for a station to squeeze in there. So they have a potential audience of 200,000 to 300,000 listeners as an urban station. Wow. Yeah. And that, that was a rarity for stations to get into urban areas. Um, at that point, most of the low power stations that went on the air and sort of what you might call urban areas were in smaller cities, cities of, of maybe about as much as 200,000 people, a city the size of say Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but Richmond's a bigger, uh, metroplex, uh, than that. Yeah. And that changed with the second low power FM window where thanks to, various experts and activists, the FCC actually opened things up so that, you know, we are seeing some stations coming on the air in urban areas. But in 2005, that was very unusual and very exciting for Richmond. Right. And just to sort of, uh, sort of clarify the history, the original low power FM service that was proposed by the FCC back in 2000 would have permitted low-power FM stations in most major metroplexes, meaning that the spacing requirements uh, for LPFM stations um, is basically what it is now, but that took uh, more than a decade's worth of lobbying and activist work to happen. What had happened is the Congress intervened 
and put in a budget rider, which scaled back how many stations could go on the air, at the, basically at the behest of the National Association of Broadcasters. So the, so the FCC, in this particular case, uh, was not the culprit. The FCC actually proposed rules, uh, which from an engineering standpoint made sense and still makes sense, that, that allowed you to squeeze in low-power FM stations, many other places in the dial, um, you know, basically because they're low powered. Um, it's the same rules which translator stations, which are, are called repeaters often, uh, have to obey and always have had to obey, even at the same power level. So basically, Congress intervened to to not only uh, scale back how many low power FM stations could go on the air, but to make them have to obey stricter rules mm. than repeater stations at the same exact power. That's too bad, because. Uh even even a commercial station should know this is a radio survivor truth that uh, more good radio is good for all radio exactly but they have good radio and I've had good radio now in Richmond <laughs> for uh, well over a decade right so um, and and the station I, I saw the picture from your tour pictures from your tour that you posted up at radiosurvivor.com um, it looks like it's in a in, in a, like an urban block is that correct yeah, it's on Broad Street, and it's above a cafe performance space called The Camel. Um, and yeah, it's an urban block, and it's actually not far from a college radio station that's on the same street, you know, like a ways up the block. How lovely. Yeah. Walkable radio. <laughs> radio. It's a radio street. Um, and it's in a it's in a historic building, Um and in fact, when I was in Virginia, I was in a couple of radio stations that had fireplaces. <laughs> um, and I don't know that I'd seen that before. So you might be in a studio and there's a lovely fireplace mantle and, you know, not a functional fireplace mm -hmm. anymore, but there's some historic detailing. It's in a building that has, you know, that's marked as being historic. So um they couldn't touch the mantles. They had to keep the mantles in place. Mm. So there's some lovely features. And we might hear a bit of, of the interview where they where we hear some more details, but um, it's in an old dwelling. It's the upstairs of a dwelling. And so there's a kitchen, a fully functional kitchen and a bathroom. So you can imagine that it was somebody's apartment and it's been transformed into a radio station. Hmm. But no fireside chats. Well, I mean, technically, just no fire in the fireplace. <laughs> so, so fireplace side chats, but no actual fire in. Yeah, I mean, the fireplace. Our chat, our chat took place in a production studio, and there was a fireplace right next to us. So, wow. we did indeed have a fireplace side chat. I guess. <laughs> I met with, when I arrived, there were some DJs on the air who I'd been listening to. So I chatted with them for a little bit. They were doing a British show and the two DJs were alternating back and forth, choosing songs. So, like, br so like British music. Yeah. So okay. music from, from Britain, but they both had slightly different, um, tastes in music. So, and they wouldn't tell each other what they were going to play. And it varies from week to week, but I was there during a shoegaze week. So they're playing all shoegaze music. Um, so like my bloody Valentine and slow dive. So a lot of stuff that I, that I liked from the 1990s. So that was kind of fun to listen to that as I was driving in and then to see the DJs and action and, and they were wrapping up their show. So I stepped out and stepped into the kitchen and 
met up with Bill Lupoletti, so who, who I talked to, um, over the course of my visit. So he, he gave me all the background scoop on the station and he's an amazing storyteller. And it was fascinating to hear about all of these personalities in Richmond that sort of came together to help get the station started and to also hear about sort of the rich independent media history in Richmond. And we ended up, you know, going off on some tangents because he told me about some interesting projects like color radio. So yeah, let's, let's (laughs) listen to Bill tell us about, uh, color radio. It was 1982 when it started Uh, Richmond had just gotten wired for cable. Um, and the cable system, they had 36 channels, but you know, there was only like half of them that had any programming on them, right? There weren't any, there wasn't anything to put on cable TV yet. There was the broadcast stations. There was uh, MTV had just started, right? Uh, there, there just weren't that many things, and so half of the state, half of the stations were just like teletext, oh. you know, information things. Of course, they started a cable access station, you know, yeah, that, was, yeah. that, you know that you have to have. That was required though by law, right? Yeah. And uh, but so a lot of these things, they were just this like these teletext messages. And then behind it, there was music. And the music, you listen to it, it was like, oh, it was one of the commercial radio stations. Yeah, it was like XL102 oh, or Q94, okay. something like that. And so this group of guys who had all gone to Virginia Tech together and worked on the radio station there, all lived in this house on Floyd Avenue. And so they, they were the ones that had this idea. And they knew a guy, probably from Virginia Tech, who worked for the cable company, which was Continental Cablevision at the time. That guy's name is Matt Zoller. Oh, okay. You don't know the story. No, I don't know the story. <laughs> Matt Zoller is our underwriting uh, guy right now. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, so basically, Bert called up Matt and said, we have this idea. How about, if you, how about if you guys give us one of these channels, and we'll create a whole radio station for you, and we'll just send it over like on a phone line or something like that. And there wasn't like any like corporate... It was you didn't like have to go. Get, it was they just like sat around there one day and said, "Yeah, that'd be cool," <laughs> and that was how it started. And they said, "We'll give you channel thirty six. It's the last channel on the system." And it was the channel. All they had on there was the color test b- bars, <laughs> so that you could tune your your TV correctly. And so you would listen to us, and you'd just be staring at cyan, magenta, green, the seven you know color test bars. Uh, we called it Better Radio Through Television, and it ran for a few years. Um, I was the program director very briefly of that. And it ran for three years? Uh, it, it ran for longer than I stayed with it. I was here in Richmond through 84. It was still going probably through maybe 86 or 7, I would guess. And there's a number of volunteers at WRIR who worked on color radio, in addition to myself. So that was WRIR's Bill Lupoletti talking about the fabulous color radio. When I, when I first asked him about it, he said, well, this isn't really about WRIR. And I said, but it's fascinating. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and it's sort of, I mean, there's a, a lot of the origin of community radio stations and college radio stations are on cable television this way because in that in that sort of history in the 70s and the 80s 
that's where the excess bandwidth, if you will, was. That's where there were channel extra channels because there weren't hundreds and hundreds of satellite distributed cable TV channels. Uh, and because um, from the very beginning, cable television pretty much required that there be these uh, educational government and public access channels. So your community college or your local college would have a channel that would be exactly this. It would be the text on the screen. Um, you know, it could be the weather, it could be community announcements, and then they need something to play behind it. And that would be the start. And certainly the, st the community radio station where I spent a lot of time at WEFT in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, that's what they did. They got on the cable TV system in uh, the late 70s in the time when they, before they got the station on air and got the license in 1981. Um, and what was great for them in sort of how, it's sort of like how we treat internet radio now. It gave them the opportunity to actually begin building a station, begin building programming, getting volunteers trained, getting DJs on the air, uh, so that when they could throw the switch on a transmitter, they actually had a station. Um, and, and I know that you know many cities, maybe these stations like this color radio, they came and went, but I think it sort of whets the appetite for a community, uh, for people who find out about it, that, oh, wait, there is an alternative to the Top 40 station and the talk radio station. We can have a, a different sort of station. So I, I was really pleased to, to learn about that. Oh, yeah, it was exciting. And he first brought it up because I think I mentioned that I was at KFJC, and he said that some of the folks who started Color Radio had had gone out to California and had some tapes of KFJC. Wow. So that was like part of, you know, part of the inspiration. Although, um, it sounds like a bunch of them were involved with college radio to begin with, but there was something about what they heard on KFJC that they wanted to bring to color radio as well. So it's, it's amazing, um, how small a world it is. And it's amazing to see the connections, you know, where people at WRIR came from. Um, you probably heard in the background a woman's voice who was saying, oh, <laughs> and that was Anna Creech, who is the music director at WRIR. And as Bill was telling me a bunch of these stories, he kept mentioning names that we find out later are people who are involved with WRIR now. So it seems like a really interesting community in Richmond where through all these amazing connections, people have come together to do media. So color radio is just part of it that I was also super excited to hear about. I think that's a role community radio often plays that, peop that, that, that is easy to forget about if you're involved and that people who are not involved don't always realize is that it, it brings people together who are sort of interested in, in making uh, art and media that is widely shared, that has a very uh, community communitarian aspect to it, and you find out that 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 sometimes in in a various communities there have been different attempts to do to do these things uh, based upon whatever technology or kind of community organizing was available at the time. And if if there was not an easy way to get an FM license, someone tried it a different way. I think again, often it's now it's on the internet, uh, but people still do you know do try to do it in ways that are are interesting and, and maybe very kind of uh, tied to the place itself. I mean, I, I mean, it makes me think of Kachung, right, in, in Los Angeles, which operates a, a very low-powered <laughs> Part 15 AM transmitter, even in this day and age, in addition to doing internet radio, but, but also, you know, 
has DJs who are very active in the arts and music community, right? So I, I think this is a great example, right? That so even though Richmond wasn't able to have community radio um, until the 2000s, obviously there were lots of people really interested in and involved in independent media and independent audio media for quite some time, going back you know decades prior to getting the station on the air. Yeah, and a lot of college radio folks as well. And, and I heard this when I visited other stations in the area. So I visited University of Richmond and at their radio station, somebody told me, oh yeah, you know, tons of people from University of Richmond station have made their way to WRIR. And I heard Virginia Tech come up a bunch of times. So a lot of people from there, Anna Creech, um, the music director had, done college radio at a couple of places, including WXJM, which is also in Virginia, and WRFL at University of Kentucky. So a lot of people coming from some interesting places. Bill Lupoletti will hear more at the end of the podcast about his his radio past. Um, but I should point out his role at the station. He, he first got involved in 2004 before the station got on the air. And he's currently on the board of the organization that holds the license for the station. It's Virginia Center for Public Press, and it's a working board. So he's also the assistant music director for world music and hosts a show, uh, a world music focused show. So he was a good person to to give me backstory on the station. And, and maybe we'll hear a clip of him right now talking about the deep backstory on how WRIR came to be. The genesis of this project really goes back to 1991, okay, to, you know, to, to really start where it started. Um, in 1991, that was the year of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and that was the year that the 24-hour news cycle was invented, I would say. This was when a lot of people, myself included, got, uh, very, um, uh, got, got very closely acquainted with CNN. Because everyone wanted to be able to follow what was going on in the first time in history where you could follow a war from your living room, right? And it was important and it was fascinating and it was something that, that where, where media really had a brand new role. And in the world of public radio, one of the things that happened that year was they started the, the first public radio talk show, call-in show. It became Talk of the Nation. It was originally started as a call-in show where people could ask questions about what was going on in, in Iraq and Kuwait. And like, like many NPR affiliates, the one here in Richmond, WCVE-FM, carried that show, and it was essentially preempting their existing broadcasting, which was classical music. Their format over there was uh, morning edition and all things considered and classical music in between. At the time, so you know, between probably it's much different now. Yeah, between like maybe nine a.m. and five p.m., it was all classical. So it was the, it was you know that old-fashioned NPR format that yeah. was in the classical, and um, so they drew a whole bunch, whole new kind of audience by having um, a news talk show in the afternoon. And after about six months, they went back to the old programming, and some of the people who had been listening to it were like, "Why? <laughs> this is great stuff," you know. Um, and one of those people is named Chris Maxwell, and um, he 
uh, started this petition drive to get WCVE to bring back Talk of the Nation. That was the genesis of this project because Max, by doing that, got himself very interested in how radio is is made, how these choices are made. He actually finagled a meeting with the management of WCVE around that time where he went in and presented his petitions and all of his signatures and all of that stuff and they looked at him like, so what? <laughs> and after a while one of them said, I think this is probably close to a direct quote, if, you, if, if you're so interested in this, why don't you start your own radio station? And that was the wrong person to say that to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, so he got personally very interested in the idea of low-power FM, which I guess began percolating, you'll know more about this than me, probably about the late 90s people started talking about that, yeah. the Prometheus Radio Project, things like that. And so he became kind of a media, one-man media activist in Richmond. And eventually he hooked up with other people here that were interested in similar things. There were two other groups in Richmond. That were that had kind of common interests. He was he Max was a one man band, really. It wasn't an organization. It was him. And I think we have a photo up in the hallway there of him sitting out there with the petitions, okay. which was like how pretty much everybody that knows him met him. <laughs> <laughs> the guy with the petitions in front of the Bird Theater. So that was W R I R's Bill Lupoletti and revealing some of the history of the station the community radio station in Richmond, Virginia. And I got to meet uh, Christopher Maxwell, who he mentioned, uh, um, 17 years ago, I figured out, looking through my notes and old blog posts at my, at my old blog, Media Geek. Um, I met him at the Grassroots Radio Conference in Madison, Wisconsin, in the year 2000. What, that was actually the first time I met John Anderson, friend of the show, a very good friend of mine, who's now a professor um, at Brooklyn College. Um, and who's an expert on things like HD radio in particular, but in all sorts of, of broadcast history and the political economy of broadcasting. Um, so I met Christopher Maxwell at the same time. And at that time, I believe the uh, that Virginia Center for the Public Press had just sort of gotten off the ground, and they were doing lots of good reporting and organizing around low-power FM at that time. And at that moment, um, Low Power FM, I believe the rules had been authorized and released by the FCC, but already uh, we were aware of the lobbyists from the National Association of Broadcasters in Congress basically spreading disinformation and lies about Low Power FM, playing CDs of, of supposed what interference will sound like wow. if Low Power FM stations were, were would be permitted closer to the... Um, uh, full power stations on the dial, as they are now, um, many years later. Dirty tricks. And certainly uh, Christopher Maxwell, uh, I know, was one of, the, one of the prime forces trying to bring these tactics to light and doing reporting and spreading information about <laughs> the fight that would have to happen in Congress that, that was lost. Um, unfortunately, even though um, WRIR was still able to get on the air in Richmond, but it meant that lots of people in places like San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles weren't able to get on the air at that time. So I just it, it would brought back this memory when you when you mentioned when I heard uh, Christopher Maxwell's name and and I certainly um, I certainly remember him as is as definitely like a very hardcore activist, but someone I think whose whose um, energy 
uh, and uh, ability to get things done was was really needed at that time. Um, and and even if uh, low power FM got dialed back in 2000, um, I think you know there's the legacy of action that happened that that allowed it to be turned back up in the 2010s. That sounds like you're making a pitch for the uh, low power FM history podcast here on oh my goodness oh my goodness that would be amazing oh wouldn't that be wonderful i mean you know i keep telling eric one of my favorite podcasts that i and i don't always keep up with it but i go back and listen to the internet history podcast and it's actually a guy who's writing a book about early internet history and so he's basically just turning the interviews he's doing for the book so wonderful it's a very useful way to use the internet and he gets in <laughs> from a man who likes the internet such arcane things that i remember so i love it um you know right the 90s forgotten. and the early aughts and yeah the people 90s who built stuff right stuff and, that's not around anymore but was built upon yeah and here's some you know what could be lost history you know uh and l- luckily uh bill lupoletti there at uh at wrir reminds us and, and, and triggers memories for me. And I literally had to go just do a search back on my own blogs. I'm like, Christopher Maswell, I think I, it's hard. I think I remember. I need to go, did I write yeah. about it? <laughs> do I have notes? And, it's it, and not, that's my notebook. It's not easy to admit that you, the things that happen in your lifetime are a part of history yeah. and, and uh, might be worth preserving other than you know your own personal uh photograph library i know like the actual events that you're a part of absolutely i mean we have so many books in us <laughs> you're a radio survivor and only matthew has succeeded in publishing any <laughs> i know i know we need to get we need to get on that get our own publishing imprint is, uh, is what we need to do i so i'll do the free speech radio news uh, <laughs> the I history was, i was there so bill bill lupoletti he talks about chris maxwell and then some other folks who were also activists who helped get things going, including Ellen Shintius, um, who actually lived in the building and wanted to start this cafe called the camel, which eventually did get started. Um, and then Scott Berger, who was running a streaming radio station. So there were sort of all of these folks with similar ideas who came together to help start this thing among many others. And, as far as hidden history, I was also really intrigued to hear that Tim Kaine plays a role in the history of WRIR as well. Speaking of and, history. And who is I Tim Kaine? Who is Tim Kaine, Paul? He, well, he was. <laughs> back in the day, he was the mayor of Richmond. You're going to regret this. And he... He was uh, Hillary Clinton's pick for... Yeah, recently. But I'm vice still, president. You know, it's it's good to Speaking always of history. There, you know, and there may be folks from outside the United States who don't follow That's, our politics yeah, very closely, and who could really blame them. I'm smiling, but yeah. Speaking of history, he he so, uh, he, he might have been vice president. Uh, yes, at he this was very moment. Hillary Clinton's running mate um, and a senator. From Virginia. Um, but you know, early in his political career, he was mayor of Richmond and. Yeah they had asked for help in getting some sort of proclamation in support of low power FM and approached him about it. And, and he was super into the idea and, and apparently like as often happens, I guess often you'll approach an official with something already written. Like here's some, here's a proclamation. Can you sign it? And he was like, 
oh, no, 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 no. You know, I know what to write. Um, <laughs> so he, so he wrote the entire proclamation himself wow. and, and Bill thought maybe he had even done college radio. Although I, I was trying to do research to figure that out and I, I have not found confirmation, but if anybody knows for sure, if Tim Kaine did college radio, I would love to hear about that. Tim Kaine, if you're listening, uh, please drop us a line podcast well, at radiosurvivor.com. When he was a yeah. young person, he, I, I'm, I'm a little light on my Tim Kaine history, but he was, uh, he was in Latin America. So now my, my little radio survivor light bulbs are, are, are flickering. Maybe he had a, a radio experience. It's very possible, depending I'm, on where he was in Latin Googling, America, someplace like Guatemala. I, don't know. Uh, I do remember it came out that he was a replacements fan. So that certainly <laughs> seems like another indicator that he may have done college radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the the, the, uh, the conspiracy facts. So this we have almost enough facts that we can we can create the conspiracy theory <laughs> Oops. that he did college radio, but maybe not enough facts Speaking that we can that we that we can report it as real, but not fake news. Um, so, so he was so he was one of the first um, very influential people to support their proposal for low power for low power FM. So he plays a big role in the history of WRIR as well. So just wanted to add that to Absolutely. our story. And is there a relationship between the cafe camel and the station? Um, I'm not sure if there's a formal relationship anymore. Um, it's downstairs and so, so the, so the, uh, so definitely I'm sure DJs fuel up <laughs> on coffee downstairs before they go do their show. And I think it's an event space, so they probably do events there. Um, but we didn't, yeah, we didn't talk a whole lot about that. So I can't speak to that as much. That's all right. I mean, that's another part I've noticed about community radio stations that I, that I think, um, it's a little different than, than just any radio station in part because, so many people are involved in a given community radio station compared to even a public or, or commercial station. And always sort of the small business environment around the station, it's like it's its own uh, like little ecosphere, right? Because there's usually, you know, there's got to be a coffee shop nearby. That's really helpful. And it's and it's also nice if there's a place, uh, a bar that maybe, you know, that, that, that has bands and stuff. And you'll find there's a lot of interchange. Certainly when I was at WFT in Champaign-Urbana, you know, it's a coffee shop on the next block. And there is uh, a bar really next door. And, you know, there were certain DJs uh, from the radio station who you knew if you went into that bar on particular days at particular time. They'd be there after their show or before their show, hanging out or at the coffee shop, hanging out. And you could always catch them if you needed to catch them and see them. And sometimes, you know, even, you know, depending on the kind of show they did, uh, they'd even be talking about what they had on tap. And, you know, everyone in the bar would be like, oh, yeah, we'll be listening to you tonight. And so it's cool to hear that the radio station is actually above <laughs> a cafe. I think that's even if they're not formally related, I'm sure like oh, the yeah. informal relationship and bonds are strong. And it makes it easy to find the station. You know, they said it's above the camel. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm just love. I got to go to Richmond now. I'm really loving everything uh, about this station. And and from a programming standpoint, um, it seems like it's, it's it's you know, not not to sort of make it sound too generic, but it sounds like it's your typical community station with lots of volunteers and lots of eclectic programming. Is that about right? Yeah. And they, you know, they want to focus on underrepresented music, um, but DJs have full control of their shows there, I heard some interesting programming. They have a show, um, I believe it's called Cause and Effect. And so it's about 
the influence of one particular band and it's sort mm-hmm. of a rotating it's um it's a show where it's a different host every week so anybody at the station can sign up to host it and so you pick a band that you're interested in and then you talk about what influenced that band and then how that band influenced other bands cool so i thought that was a cool idea yeah i really like that idea it's sort of uh sort of making real that uh, apocryphal quote about the the velvet underground right it's like uh you know they didn't sell so many albums but everyone who bought an album went out and started a band, right? It's sort of taking, yeah. taking that and, and, and following that thread, which is, which is cool. And it's cool that it's sort of a regular part of the schedule. Yeah. And it's, um, so the station is, is a mix of public affairs and music programming. And it was, that was always the intention of it was, you know, in fact, in that clip that we heard the kernel of it, the kernel of the idea for the station came from a desire to have, you know, some good news programming on the radio. So they run some syndicated news and public affairs as well, as well as some local news programming. Um, and so that's part of the schedule. And then part of the schedule is music programming. So it's, it's definitely a nice mix. Um, and, and for the most part you have live folks in the studio, except for when they're running syndicated programming. Right. So they have Democracy Now, um, and they're a Pacifica affiliate, so they have some Pacifica programming. Cool. And uh, you teased up at the front that uh, that Bill, who you spoke to at the station, um, also had radio experience uh, prior to uh, joining WRIR. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yes. So when I first met him in the kitchen of the station, he extended his hand and said, you know, hi, Jennifer, I'm Bill Lippoletti, Haverford college class of, I won't say the year, but, um, (laughs) I didn't know ahead of time that we both went to the same college and he had been following my work and had read things that I'd written about Haverford radio history as well. So, and Haverford college is very small it has a student population of around a thousand students. So anytime I meet, anytime I see anybody on the street wearing Haverford paraphernalia, I will stop and say hello. And, (laughs) um, you know, it's a very friendly alumni community. So I was extremely excited to meet a fellow alum. And as you might imagine, he did college radio at Haverford. So I was interested to hear more about that. So he gives us some backstory on that as well, which includes some tidbits that I had been sort of, you know, in my unearthing of Haverford radio history, sometimes I'll hear little tidbits of things that I don't have the full story on. So he gave me some, some additional kernels as well. We, uh, when I was there, we put these, micro, these FM microtransmitters oh. all over campus. You probably know about that. This is something I've heard bits and pieces about, and I was kind of confused about how that worked. So do you know you know the details? <laughs> yeah, it was me. It wasn't me, the technology. The technology was a guy who, was, who, who lived in Gummery Hall with me when I was a freshman named Thad Mazurchuk, who was a tinkerer, you know, a guy who liked to you know, like take his car apart and put it back together and stuff like that. <clears throat> and, um, you know, wanted to be an engineer. And uh, so he knew, about, he knew about broadcast engineering, I guess, from reading or something. And I roped him into volunteering to for this idea of the problem with character <clears throat> is you have to be in the building that has that's 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 receiving the ground current. 
Mm. It's, so it's, you, you're basically broadcasting through the electrical currents of the building. Interesting. Yeah. And they had it set up there where it was like all the buildings were getting it, right? But yeah, not the apartments. I don't know if the apartments. No, HPA. No, they didn't get it. And I lived HPA. in HPA, so I could never mm. hear the station where I lived. Yeah. Oh. These campus apartments. Yeah. And um, meal time was the prime time because it was playing in the cafeteria. Right. So you nice. go, and there were two sides. Was it still that way when yeah. you did? There were two sides. There was a side that had the radio on, and the side where it was quiet. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> you could choose. And nice. sometimes the cafeteria workers would turn off the speakers, and then both sides were quiet. <laughs> right. uh, so you could do a whole show, and nobody heard it. So you know, so unlike we didn't have drive time there, we had yeah. meal time. Like meal time. That was the Dinner best time. slots was meal time. Yeah, I had a brunch show. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Unique things, but but anyway, but the carrier current is a, is an AM frequency. Okay. Okay. So you have to listen on AM, and even in the late seventies and early eighties, AM was going out. And um, so we were like, we were like, but if you had these microtransmitters and they didn't have to be licensed because they were, you know, milliwatts of power and you just put, you put them in like the attics of all the buildings, you put an X number of feet apart and you put them on slightly different frequencies so you didn't have beat distortion. If they were on exactly the same frequency, you would get on one radio, two or three or four of these things mm -hmm. and they'd be slightly delayed mm -hmm. and so it would sound like, yeah. like that. So you tuned them to slightly different frequencies. And um, so we did that for several of the buildings. We put them up in, in the attic of Gummery. That was where huh. we started. And we put them in Barkley. And we put them in all of the big dorms. Hmm. And I can't remember what the frequency was. But the whole thing was totally unlicensed and quite possibly illegal. But we didn't, we didn't know and didn't care about stuff like that. So that was Bill Lupoletti at WRIR talking about our shared history at WHRC at Haverford College. So like I was saying earlier in the podcast, it is such a small radio world. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, even, even with all these college stations and, you know, and, and the United States has such a well-developed radio system. I mean, I think I can say that there are more radio stations in the United States than in any other country on earth. And because we have relatively well-developed community and public and college radio, in addition to com commercial radio, you know, a lot of people move through all these different sorts of radio stations. Yet even so, <laughs> it's probably still a comparatively small number of people compared to any number of other sorts of avocations or vocations. Yeah, it's, it's true. Um, and, you know, now that I've visited... Uh, you know, I'm losing track because actually I've been on a tear the past few weeks. And yes. I've seen so many stations. So, you know, I've been to more than 140 stations, I would guess. Um, and many of them college stations. And I know people who, who have kids applying to college and more often than not, they'll mention a school and I'll know something about the radio station. <laughs> so Jennifer is the walking college radio station database. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're just, you know, people want to know something. We'll just set up a 1-900 number. So they're going to, we'll charge them $5 a minute well, to ask you questions I, um, about <laughs> college I, radio. I recently met somebody and I can't even recall who, who had college radio uh, history and I was like, oh, what station? And I, I very quickly went to Radio Survivor just to check to make sure that you hadn't, re you know, that they that you hadn't toured their station and I could prove uh, to to them your expertise of their world. Because, uh, 
you know, hundreds, over a hundred radio station tours, the, the chances are getting better and better. Yes. <laughs> I know there's, there's still so many more to go. I forget if I mentioned this on the podcast, but a friend was telling me that my tours as, as he was looking at colleges with his daughter, that my tours have been really helpful for the college search. <laughs> and he, he did college radio with me at Haverford. So I love the idea of these Gen X parents who are, you know, yeah. thinking about like, oh, I want to make sure my kid goes to a school with a decent college radio station. Yeah, forget U.S. News and World Report. Go to radiosurvivor.com and click, I click know. on college radio. That, that's really where <laughs> you need to go. I know. Yeah, so that's right. And so so college presidents out there and admissions officers, I hope you're listening that you need to make sure to keep your co- you want to attract the, these why really it, truly top creative students. Why did it take us so long keep to your, find this yeah, angle? I know, keep your college <laughs> radio is, station healthy. This if you is don't have a one, very start one. rich vein for I us know, to right? mine. <laughs> and put them on the on the campus tour. Yeah, um, I mean, right now this is the time of year, isn't this when like college applications are going out and coming back? I don't I Oh I, yeah, I, so acceptances have gone out and uh, and kids are making their decisions right now. No, so actually right now there are a lot of admitted students days going on and people are out revisiting schools with their kids. You need to publish your guide, Jennifer. You need to sit there and yeah. publish this guide, well, like Jennifer Waits' guide <laughs> to the best colleges to apply to because of college but radio. But it is time for college radio yeah. station personnel who may be listening to us to think about reaching out to those uh, young students who are about uh, to appear. They, they probably don't know. They probably just, I mean, you just don't have that information to, to be well, completely it, honest. It is a station. You know, and we have, I have talked, um, you know, I met a student who's the general manager of a station and she learned about the idea of college radio when she was touring another campus. Right. I remember that episode. And the station was on a tour. So, you know, I do talk to people at stations about this, like, mm-hmm. is your station on the campus tour? Right. And sometimes they're, you know, in real, in more re- remote locations. So they're not on the tour. Um, but I'm going to tease right now a future tour that hopefully we'll talk about on the podcast. So last week I was in New York and my sister-in-law is the dean of Fordham College and the college radio station there, well, it's more of a public radio station, mm-hmm. but there's student involvement, WFUV. They've been trying to get her to tour the station for a while and it's in the same building that she's in. And when we were visiting, she knew that I would want to visit the radio station. <laughs> so um, I went on the tour, and and so the dean was with me. And, and you could see how touring a radio station as a dean is an amazing experience for both the dean and for the station because <laughs> wow. she was learning about this place. They have and they a lot had on their opp- plate, don't they? <laughs> and they had an opportunity to really talk about you know, the value that they have for students. And it's the first time that I've been on a tour where it felt like, you know, it, it, it was, it was kind of different, you know, cause I had an audience for my interview. Um, and I also know kind of what's going on politically that this is, you know, a little bit different when you're showing the station for, you know, to your Dean. So it was fascinating, but I know she really enjoyed it. And ended up talking about the station at some events that she had in the days following the tour. So I can tell you. <laughs> As a former college radio advisor, I am now eager, eager for this tour. So we'll definitely get this booked on the show yeah. soon. I'm well, so I can tell this. you, 
I can tell you from that tour that this was really, this was really good for the station to have the Dean come oh, through. Yes. So, um, and it probably didn't hurt that you were there as well. Oh know, yeah. Because, because it means that somebody, outside some eyes. outsider wanted, yeah. was interested. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though I'm a relative, but you know, um, but I think, you know, it was an opportunity for her to spend time at a radio station and, and she might hear about what I do and what I write about, but this made it all much more, um, relevant to her experience. And, and I was psyched that she was then talking about the station to students and other people following the tour. So, cool. well, so we'll look forward to that WFUV tour. Sweet. I know of WFUV from growing up in the, uh, in the Northeast in the New Jersey, New York area. So I'm, I'm eager to hear this one as well. And, uh, you were, what brought you out to Virginia was the college radio symposium that happened uh, at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, hosted by WTJU, um, which is a, a community station there um, and college station as well um, at the University of Virginia. And we're going to be featuring some audio in the next uh, episode of the podcast from that symposium. Thanks to uh, Nathan Moore handful, there. Handful, handful of episodes, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a fair amount. Well, a rich vein. Thank you to Nathan Moore, who is the um, who is there at University of Virginia. Yeah, it was a great day, and um, kudos to Nathan for putting it all together. It was a full day of college radio discussion, followed by a tour, of course. <laughs> of course. So. Uh, that is something that listeners have to look forward to. So many things to uh, look forward to. Uh, thank you, Jennifer, for taking the trip out there and and doing the tour and doing all these tours, of course. Um, there's much to look forward to, both to read about at radiosurvivor.com, which we will have in the show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast episode number 88, because we'll have links to the visuals and more write-up from your tour of WRIR. But of course, if people go to radiosurvivor.com and click on college. It's up at the top menu there. Uh, they can see all of your reporting and all of the tours that you've done. So we wouldn't want people to miss out. Yes, there's a lot. And I'm, I'm really working hard to try to catch up because now I have this humongous backlog of tours. So I'm, I'm trying as I might to get them up quickly. <laughs> you are, you are, you've actually been a machine. I'm, I've been very impressed at the rate at which you've been posting them. Uh, much faster than I've been posting things. So <laughs> my hat is well, off I tried, to you. Yeah. When I was in Virginia, I tried to write up quickly, uh, you know, kind of the shell of the tour for each one, you know, while it was fresh in my mind, because I'm Ooh, finding here's a that tip for a writer. I know. Well, it's an obvious, I mean, we all know we're supposed to do that, right? I'm, I'm, um, I'm soaking this in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, I, you know, I have some from months ago that I need to write up and it just, just becomes much more difficult the further you are from the experience. So right. I tried to write up, write up some posts even when I was on the plane. So we'll see. <laughs> I'm, doing, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm doing my, I'm doing my best. <laughs> as, as we all are. Yes. Well, thank you again, and thank you to everyone, to you listening to us on your earbud or your Bluetooth speaker or in your car or, or maybe even with your kids. I don't know. We keep it clean here, so, you know, we're, it's a kid-enough-friendly podcast. I've listened to several uh, public radio-style podcasts that have done disclaimers at the top saying, basically, we're gonna, if you've got kids around, maybe you want to delay your podcast listening. My 11-year-old has unfettered access <laughs> to podcasting. He's become a real reply-all expert. He's, 
He's uh so Okay. Yeah. yeah. There well, you go. There you go. Well, my kids my kids even been on the podcast, so That's true. <laughs> That's right. So thank you everyone for spending a little bit of time with us this week. Thank you Jennifer, thank you Eric. Thank you guys. Thanks.